All right, so we are in the book of Revelation. That is the very last book in the Bible. Um, so go all the way to the end. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3. Okay, so we're going to try, we're going to make an attempt to do all seven churches tonight. Again, we've got 13 more weeks to cover the entire scope of the end of the world. The entire scope of Revelation. So we said we wouldn't be able to go word for word, verse by verse. But we're going to try hard to hit all seven churches tonight. And so get ready for the fire hose, because here we go. All right, so turn to Revelation chapter 2. And we will begin with verse 1. Now to set the stage, last week we talked about the whole idea that Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ. That is the whole point of Revelation, is to reveal our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The whole point of Revelation, it's basically split into three, or split into three sections. You've got the past, which is chapter 1. You've got the present, which is the seven churches, 2 and 3. And then from verse 1 of chapter 4 all the way through um, chapter 22, we've got things that have not happened yet on earth. Okay, so today we're going to hit the seven churches. Now last week, we found out who the author of Revelation is. Who is the author of Revelation? John. John wrote the five, the last five books chronologically in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and then Revelation. Basically because he was the last one alive. Everyone else had been martyred, so everybody's looking to John, what you got? And so... He brought the gospel. The gospel of John is, is probably my favorite. Um, it's powerful. Um, first, second, third John, powerful. But then we get to Revelation. Written somewhere between 90 and 95 AD, 60-some years after Jesus walked, um, was crucified, and rose. John is an old man. No one knows exactly how old, but probably in his late 80s. He's been imprisoned because of his faith and because of his testimony in Jesus Christ. He is in um, basically in a, a, an island prison, the original Alcatraz at Patmos. We have a map here. I want to show that real quick so you can sort of get an idea of where everything is. Okay, so there's Patmos, that nice little red dot. You see Greece over there. Um, um, Italy's over um, further to the left. But there's the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Okay, and so he's going to write to these seven churches, and we're going to sort of go in, uh, in an archway. We're going to start with Ephesus, go up to Smyrna, to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and end with Laodicea. So John is on the island of Patmos, and then all of a sudden he sees what? Jesus. Now, we, we reminded everybody that John knew Jesus probably better than anybody. He was probably, if Jesus had a best friend on earth, John was it. John was there for almost every major act in Jesus' ministry. He was there for his baptism. He was there at the cross. He was there through all the stories, all the sermons, all the miracles. He watched Jesus walk on water. He watched him raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew Jesus. And yet when Jesus stood behind him, John turned around and did what? Fell flat to his face. The first plank job, just right there on the floor. And Jesus reached out his hand and said, don't be afraid. 
And we remember how Jesus was described. It's not like that those pictures where Jesus is holding a nice little fluffy lamb and he's got blue eyes. He's Norwegian and he never blinks. Have you ever noticed that? The, all the Jesus movies before Passion of the Christ, Jesus never blinks. Just weird. He walks at three quarter speed and just weird. Okay. But this is different than everything we've ever known about Jesus according to Hollywood. This is powerful Jesus. This is Jesus in his full glory. This is a Jesus that causes people to drop to their face. And then at the end of chapter 1, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand... And of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels, which also means messengers or pastors. So the leaders of the church. And the seven lampstands are the churches. So we asked John, you're going to write to seven churches. Now these seven churches, as we saw on the map, are literal churches. They existed at the time of this writing. Now why only seven? Were these the seven most famous churches? No. Ephesus was pretty famous. He didn't write a letter to Corinth. Jesus didn't write to Thessalonica. He didn't uh, write to Berea. Why these seven? Why, Why write to just seven churches? Well, you'll get used to as we go through Revelation, whether, whether on Tuesday night, it's Tuesday, right? Yeah, Tuesday night, or on Sunday morning, um, with Michael Scott's Revelation class, which is phenomenal, by the way, you should go. You'll notice that the number seven is used over and over and over and over and over again. Throughout tribulation, we'll see seven trumpets, seven seals. Here we see the seven stars of the seven churches with seven golden lampstands. The word seven means completeness. It is symbolic of completeness. What Jesus is saying here is I write to these seven churches, everything I have to say to these specific churches and the church forevermore is complete in these seven statements. This is my complete word to the church. And John, I want you to write to these seven churches. And in each one, you'll see he introduces himself. He gives himself a description, a piece of the description that appears in chapter 1. You'll see pieces of those used. If the church is doing something good, he'll commend them for that. If the church is doing something bad, he will rebuke the church for that. He will give each church an exhortation. Here's what you need to do to either improve or to continue on what you're doing. And then he gives a promise to the churches that are able to overcome. So let's look at this first church, the church in Ephesus. So let's go ahead and read this, the first seven verses. To the angel, or the pastor, of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. I have found them false. You have persevered, you have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Now, if we stop there, this sounds like an incredible church. 
This sounds like what every church should strive to be. The description used in the first four verses is what I hope Cornerstone would be. And the church of Ephesus is a good church. The church of Ephesus is the most spoken about church in the New Testament. We see the church of Ephesus written about in Acts chapter 19. We see an entire epistle or letter written to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians. And then we see it again as Jesus' last words, he writes again to this church. Each time the church is written about, there's about 30 years or a whole generation of gap. The first time we see the church in Ephesus, we see it sort of crazy in chapter 19 of Acts. We see riots starting within the city because Christians are coming in and they're causing issues with the local trade. You see, the church of Ephesus or the city of Ephesus is a big city. It's about 225,000 people. Back then, that is a massive, massive city. It was a harbor city. It was a wealthy city. It was a city famous for its commerce. And it was a city famous for one of the ancient wonders, the Temple of Diana. The Temple of Diana was Ephesus. And here's what happened at the Temple of Diana or Artemis. Here's how you worship in this temple. They had temple prostitutes. And the way you would worship is the men of the city would show up on worship day and they would have sex with the prostitutes. Now, I'm sure their men's ministry was off the hook. But this church was a little pagan. (laughs) And so here come the Christians going, yeah, I'm not going to show up for worship service. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to buy those idols that you're making. And all of a sudden, the city of Ephesus started rising up and saying, we got to get rid of these Christians. And so this church is persevering. They're enduring hardships. The city doesn't like them. What an amazing church. But then we get to verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first Love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Take a moment and read that that passage again. What is it saying? Go ahead and read verse 4 and 5 again. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So even though they've worked hard, they have persevered, they've done everything that you can do in the name of God. In fact, in in verse 6, He will write another thing that they're doing. They're not tolerating the false doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So here's a church that's persevering, working hard, doing all the things you're supposed to do as a church. They're busy, 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 busy. They do not tolerate false doctrine. An amazing church. But yet Jesus looks straight in the eyes of them and says, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. 
What does it mean to forsake something? I do this all the time. Barb, where are my keys? That sounds okay. This is actually more likely. Barb, where's the remote? Barb, where did I put that? Barb's my wife, by the way. She's right there. When you leave something behind, you for, you're forsaking it. How many have ever, and I'm really talking to men here, how many have ever got home from the grocery store? Well, you didn't get home. Your wife got home from the grocery store. And your job is to take all the groceries in. Anybody like that? Okay. What is the task at hand? Take all the groceries in on one trip, right? One trip. Doesn't matter if your fingers are going to fall off. Those plastic bags were a godsend for this. You just go... It's a test. It's a challenge. Okay? You put more things in there. You, you, there's still milk. Milk. And so you're trying to figure that out. You're going like this. And what happens? Now I'm talking to women. What happens on the way in? Oranges are forsaken. Milk's forsaken. Um, eggs are forsaken all over the place. When you forsake something, you leave it behind. And what does Jesus tell this church to do? Stop. Repent. What does repent mean? Turn around and go back to what you did at first. The way you find your keys, the way you find your remote, the way you find your purse, the way you find oranges under the van, whatever. You turn around and you go back to where you were at first. He's looking at the church of Ephesus, who Paul beautifully wrote to in Ephesians. And remember what Paul said in Ephesians. He commended the church for their faith. Paul loved this church. It was one of his church plants. He loved them with all his heart. He asked them to live a life worthy of the call. Keep doing what you're doing. Stand firm against the devil's schemes. And in 30 years, the church that was so on fire for Jesus had left him behind. Now, they didn't leave him behind by going into devil worship or prostitutes or anything like that. Did you catch what was the cause of them leaving Jesus behind? The church. This is something you might not hear a pastor say too often. It is totally possible to be so busy for God that you forget God. It is so possible to be participating in every program under the sun that you forget Jesus Christ. This church was persevering. They were doing all the religious things and they were doing it well. But Jesus is all, stop. Take a breath. Turn around and look at me. Because you're supposed to be following me. I should never be behind you. Sometimes churches turn into a group of frozen chosen who have forgotten that they're supposed to be following Jesus, not having Jesus follow their schedule. 
And then he says something chilling. And if you understand what the lampstand means, what were the, what were the seven stars? The angels, the messengers, the pastors. What was the lampstand? The church. The church is supposed to hold up the light of who? Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you're too busy doing this piece that you're forgetting this piece, I will remove the distraction. And I will get you back into worship. Today, there is no act of church in Ephesus. Jesus is warning this church, and he's warning our church. Jesus is always your first priority. Worship is so important. Bible study is so important. Jesus has got to be number one. Even over good things, Jesus can't be number two. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the first time since Genesis that the tree of life is mentioned. To the one who is victorious, there will be a time and a day where you will again eat from the tree of life. One of the greatest analogies I've ever seen is an analogy called between the trees. And that's where we live currently. In Genesis, before the fall of man, everybody was on this side of the tree of life. Everything was perfect. Everything was good. There was no sin in the world. Then man fell. And from that point on until this point in Revelation, we have been living between the trees. And everything that was normal is now abnormal. Everything that was good is gone. But someday, Jesus will come back. Somewhere around week 11 of this study. (laughs) And here will be the tree of life again. And from that point on, for eternity, everything will be back to normal. What we call miracles between the trees is normal on the other side of the trees. And every time we see a miracle in our life, a healing, an obvious touch of God, all God is doing is touching a little bit of normal into our abnormal life. This is what it will be like. No more pain. No more tears. Second church. The church of Smyrna. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last and who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So here we got the church of Smyrna. We're going up. It's a little bit north of the church of um, Ephesus. He mentions the synagogue of Satan. Now notice that this church is commended for what they're going through. Did you guys all catch that? What was the rebuke? There was none. Jesus had no rebuke for this church. Synagogue of Satan, what is this? Well, Romans 2, 28 through 29, Paul talks about a man is not a Jew if he only is one on the outside, nor is, he, or nor is the circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by written code. Apparently in this church, as Jesus dealt with, with the Pharisees, there were, there were a group of Jews that on the outside they looked like they were following the, the code. But they didn't believe in God any more than the, uh, any more than the atheists, the Greek atheists. And they were persecuting this church. Persecution in the city of Smyrna was greater than any of the other seven. In fact, um, history tells us that the Jews, being especially zealous, often ran to procure fuel to put these people to death. The famous um, Christian saint from long ago, Polycarp, his trial happened in this city. The city was well known for their education. It's amazing how sometimes cities that are well-known for education are very intolerant of Christianity. Christians were tortured, persecuted in this city. And yet Jesus says, hold on. Hold strong. I know your afflictions. And who else but Jesus knows their afflictions? I know your pain. I know what it's like to suffer, but be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you a victor's crown. The church of Smyrna had no rebuke. They were just told to keep on holding on, be faithful, and you will be rewarded with this crown. This church is often called the martyr's church. At the end, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the prophetic meanings of each one of these churches. But this church definitely was when all the the bad stuff started happening. And we talk about bad stuff in the United States. It's nothing compared to what happened back in the day. To be honest, it's nothing compared to what's happening overseas in some places. So what do we learn from this church? Hold strong. Because if you don't think it's in the United States, it's on its way. The church will always be persecuted. The church will always be persecuted. And Jesus says, hold on. I am with you to the very end of the age. I will never leave you. And I don't want to minimize by any stretch some of the pains and the trials that people in here are going through. They're very real and they're hurtful. Jesus says, hold on. If you're struggling, hold on. I am with you. I know you're suffering. Keep going. 
we got to keep going here. The church of Pergamum. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. You see, as Jesus is introducing himself to each one of these churches, he's using a different piece of the description that's found in chapter 1. These are the words of him who holds the, who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has its throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They're mentioned again. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only by the one who receives it. So the church of Pergamum. Church Pergamum was famous. Had the second biggest library in the world at that time. Second only to Alexandria for you history buffs. In fact, this library was so beautiful, so magnificent, that it was gifted to Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. The church or the city worshipped an idol right in the middle of the city. It was a huge serpent. Many believe that Satan once had his, his throne in the city of Babylon. And when Babylon fell, he ended up going up to Pergamum. Whatever the case, Jesus points this out and says, You sit on the throne of Satan. You might have a great library, but to me, your city's famous for killing my witness, Anubis. Anubis was a follower of Jesus Christ who was martyred for his belief, was martyred for his um, outgoing statements of who Jesus was and his evangelistic, evangelistic nature. It talks about your city's very similar to those of Balaam. And we remember Balaam from Numbers chapter 25 and chapter 31. How Balaam tricked the Israelites into worshiping false idols. Or Balak did. And Jesus is comparing this situation to what happened then. And what does he say to the church? Well, first he says, here's what you're doing good. You have good works. You hold fast to my name. You have not denied the faith. But here's the rebuke. You hold to the doctrine of Balaam. You hold to, you allow false things into your church. Yeah, you say, I love Jesus, but you also do this. And how many times have we seen churches have both feet on the side of the fence? Yes, we love Jesus. Yes, we believe in Jesus. But I am not going to let go of this. How many of us in our own lives have something that we're not letting go of? And we're allowing that to come in to our faith. We're allowing that to poison our faith. What does he tell them? Repent. 
If you do not, I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What does the sword represent? Truth. If you have an issue discerning what's true and false, what should be allowed in the church, I'll discern it for you. What is this promise? You will eat of the hidden manna. It's probably a reference to the manna that was stored in the Ark of the Covenant. That my word will stay and sustain you forever. You will receive a white stone with a new name on it. Now there's debate on what the white stone actually means. Um, Some think it's the stone that when you enter the temple... It has the name on it. So some people think it's the temple stone. Some think it's the stone that's, that's on the chest of the rabbi. But whatever the meaning, you will have a new name. We move on to the church of Sardis. Actually, let's not skip Thyatara. They'll be mad. Let's go on to the church of Thyatara. To the angel of the church in Thyatara write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds. Your love and faith, your service and your perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. So again, this church is doing good things. They're working hard. They're persevering. They're serving God. And then he adds this. And you're actually better now than what you were in the beginning. You're growing. And that's one of our... Big three here at Cornerstone. We want to grow. That's what the whole point of the mine is. To grow. And this church is doing that. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of... Oh, did I... Oh, I'm sorry. Yet, nevertheless, I hold this against you. Verse 20. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent for her her immorality... But she is unwilling. So I will cast her on the bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. Unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches the hearts and minds. And will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatara. To you who do not hold to her teaching. And have not learned Satan's um, so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have been doing until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one, that one will rule them with an iron, iron scepter and I will dash them into pieces like pottery. Just as I received authority from my father, I will also give one, or that one, the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's the commendation? Again, works, charity, service, faith. They're growing in their knowledge and in their service. And yet they tolerated the false prophet Jezebel to teach him more immorality and idolatry. No one knows if um, there was actually a prophetess in this um, city called Jezebel. Most likely it's a reference uh, to the Old Testament Jezebel and how again they are falling for a false doctrine, a false teaching and they are allowing that to seep into their church. 
I cannot stress enough how important it is not to allow false doctrine to seep into the church. That is why places like this, Sunday morning, and more importantly, you yourself taking the word of God and studying it. The FBI says that um, how they train their officers who work in the whole counterfeiting industry and who go after people who um, counterfeit money. Do you know how they train them to spot what is counterfeit? They don't show them different examples of counterfeit. The FBI agents actually study the real thing. And they study the real thing so well that anytime something fake comes along, they can spot it immediately. That is what Jesus is calling this church to do. Don't fall for the counterfeit, don't fall for the fake. For here at Cornerstone, we often get questions. And, well, what about the church here? And what, what about Jehovah Witness? What about Mormonism? What about this? What about that? Is this right? Uh, is this true? Is this biblical? And the, the answer that Jesus would say is, stop worrying about them. Focus on me. Open God's word and know it. Know the word backwards and forwards. So when you see something fake, you can spot it. When someone starts saying something wrong, and by the way, I could say something wrong. Some of you have probably already written uh, information tonight of something that maybe I said wrong. Don't ever, 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 ever solely trust someone speaking from a stage. Can I say that again? Don't ever, ever, ever solely trust someone speaking with the stage. Always bring your Bible. Always bring your Bible. Because some things are subtle. Some cults have been started over just the pluralization of a word. Always bring your Bible. They'll keep you from drinking Kool-Aid in some jungle. Okay? Always bring your Bible. Study it. Dig into it. We're going to go ahead and stop there. We did five out of seven. Okay, we're in the Hall of Fame in baseball. We're batting good. Okay, so we're going to hit the next two churches next week. And then we're also going to talk about all seven churches in scope of prophetic history. Because yes, Jesus wrote to seven literal churches that existed in Asia Minor. But many theologians believe that these churches also represent seven church ages that began with Jesus and the last church, which you might want to pay close attention to, Laodicea, is the current age leading up to the rapture. Okay, so next week we'll talk about that, what each one of them represent. We'll hit the final two churches, the nice church of Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, and Laodicea, the lukewarm church. All right, so let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll open up for some questions. All right, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the I Am. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We thank you for the description of who he is in chapter 1. And Heavenly Father, give us wisdom to see things the way you see them. It's so easy to stand up here or sit in the seats 
and look at these churches going, oh, look how foolish they are. Heavenly Father, give us clarity to see how even this church in America, this church maybe has some things that we need to learn. How we as pastors, how we as leaders of ministries need to learn from what you have said to these seven churches. Heavenly Father, I pray, and Heavenly Father, I pray specifically with that church of Ephesus. Don't ever let us put Jesus second in our lives. Heavenly Father, give us the wisdom to put him first in everything. To never be too busy for Jesus. To never be too busy to worship him. To open his word. To be the hands and feet of him in our community. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Cornerstone. We thank you for Pastor Lynn. We thank you that he is our messenger to this church. That we thank you for the vision that you have given him. And we just pray for protection for him. Pray that you continue to give him wisdom to lead this church, the church that is in Chandler, Arizona, the church that is in Santan, Arizona, the church that affects things in Kenya and India and Jamaica and all over the world. Heavenly Father, be with us. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. We do have some mics that are roaming around. Again, I know the first three chapters really don't have all those crazy symbolic things going on. I know the questions are going to get quite weird. Chapter 4 on. If you have questions on the rapture, the tribulation, the end times and all that, hold those to the weeks that we talk about those because we will probably hit those. On your way out, make sure you stop by the mission booth and grab, um, grab some information on how you can sponsor. So do we have some questions for tonight? Uh, I just had a question about uh, the writing of, of uh, Revelation. And you had said last week that you had thought John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, were all written at about the same time Revelation was written. Um, and, not, not the same time as Revelation, but um, towards the, they're, they're pretty much the last five books. There is some debate on a couple, couple books, but most people think they were the last five. Revelation for sure is the last book that was written. Yep. Right. I, I just wanted to, maybe if you wanted to speculate why the destruction of Jerusalem wasn't mentioned in any of those five books. I mean, it's, Josephus said it was probably the greatest war ever fought up till mm-hmm. that time and why it wouldn't have been mentioned other than Jesus predicting the temple being destroyed and why John wouldn't mention that the temple in all of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70. Yeah, wow, great question. Yeah, so the, the uh, Jerusalem was totally sacked, totally destroyed in A.D. 70. Um, you mentioned the temple, and there's a, there's a dual meaning there, obviously. Jesus being the temple that was also destroyed and was resurrected in three days. But yeah, the, the crazy thing about that temple, remember how Jesus said that not even one stone would remain on the other? Um, as the Roman soldiers are going in there, there was actually a rumor that the mortar used for the temple was made of gold. So the Roman soldiers literally took a pickaxe, like the mine axe, and cut every stone to pieces looking for that gold. So the prediction that it would be turned, each stone 
top another happened. And so why wasn't that mentioned? Well, most of the books were written actually before that happened. Most of the books were written before that happened. Revelation, however, was written after, but the scope of Revelation is not focused on what happened in the past. It's really focused in on what happened in the future. It's focused on the revealing of Christ It's focused on his last words to the church that we're in the middle of. And then it's focused on everything that is going to happen from that point on. So for Revelation to mention it, that probably um, wouldn't make too much sense. As far as some of the other books that were written around that time, why they don't mention it, don't know. Um, We do know that... um, Again, the focus of the entire Bible, not just Revelation, is the revealing of Christ. And from Genesis chapter 12 all the way on, the entire Bible is focused in on one little thread, Abraham and his descendants. That's why there's no mention of the Great Wall of China being built. There's no mention of Socrates or Socrates or of Plato or any of that kind of stuff. Um, in fact, um, Homer was actually from, I think, it, can I have the map up there again? Are you back there? Back there? Which one is it? Smyrna. Smyrna is actually where Homer is from. And if you know Homer, he's the one that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. So most of those famous tales um, happened around in that area. So there's a lot of things in the world that are happening that aren't mentioned in the Bible. But that, that's a phenomenal question. Why weren't some of those things, especially something that catastrophic, that close, close to the heart. But once we get out of the first pieces of, um, of Acts, chapters 1 through 7, we're sort of leaving Jerusalem behind. And they're going into the, the next stages. And by the time we get into the epistles, we're, we're up into Greece and we're up into um, um, Asia Minor. So that's probably a good reason why it wasn't mentioned. But yeah, it's a good question. I'll actually try to look up that a little more and see if I can come with a better answer. What were some of the main uh, pillars uh, of the teachings or practices of the Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans, some of their false doctrines. Um, to be honest, I couldn't. I probably can't rattle off their exact pillars. I do know the Nicolaitans were a a false um, doctrine. It wasn't so much like a cultic, even though anything apart from Jesus is a cultic, <laughs> technically by nature. Um, but the Nicolaitans would be similar to what would a modern-day cult be, um, a different Jesus. They were presenting a different Jesus than what the Orthodox belief of Jesus is. Yep. In um, John's epistles, he talks about false doctrine and, um, you know, the undermining that the... Uh, visiting ministers were doing to the churches and all. The question, though, is did John actually write these letters to the churches and deliver them and perhaps they're lost, or is that uh, purely in Revelation for information? Say that one more time. Did John actually write the letters to these seven churches and have them delivered? I believe so. Yeah, I believe John was the author of these seven. Well, Jesus was the author. That's why some of you have the the fancy little red lettering. Jesus was the author of these seven letters. John basically was going, okay, yes, I got it. Uh, He he was the writer of that. Um, And then those churches or those letters were then delivered, yes, to those churches. And and so they're lost from that because there's no mention 
in, you know, biblical history about there being remains anywhere. About what? The, the, the letters are truly lost, aren't they? Because uh, unless you know that somebody has read, say, a remnant or can recognize it. Yeah, well, the actual letters, um, um, the letters aren't lost because we, in technically, because we just read them. But yeah, the original, but, I, I get you on that. The originals, um, the original manuscripts of much of the Bible, um, the very first one, yeah, they're, those aren't there. But the way the Bible was written, and we'll have to get to this uh, another week, is is it's continually copied and copied and copied and copied. And so there are more manuscripts of the Bible that are... But the one, that the actual scroll that John, that John wrote, and I don't know if anybody would be able to, be able to look at that and say, oh, yeah, that was, that was it. Um, whether it exists somewhere or not, I wouldn't know. I don't think there's any way to prove that. But the content of that letter is definitely existing. Yep. The second death that he mentions in verse 11. Great question. I should have hit that. The second death, okay, there's the first death. We get, everybody has the first death, the, the physical death. The second death is when someone dies spiritually, when someone officially is separated from God, okay? So when we die physically, we're separated from our body. When we die spiritually, we're separated from God. So hell basically is the second death. Okay, and this church, any all believers will not face the second death. Okay, couple more minutes, and then of course I'll stay around in the front. Bueller, Bueller's at it. I think some of you just wait till the guy's way over here, and then you just <laughs> just to see him run. Yes. Um, in the last church, we talked about what was it, Thyatira. Uh-huh. It mentions the gift of the morning star. Is that what does that symbolize? The morning star is Jesus. Okay. All right. Well, we are going to continue. Um, we're falling a little bit behind, but not too bad. We'll we'll catch up. We'll catch up. We are going to hit the next two churches, and then next week you want to read ahead. We're going to be looking at chapter four. We're going to be talking about the topic of the rapture. Okay, we're going to talk about the rapture, when it happens, all that kind of stuff, what it is. So on your way out, make sure you stop by the mission booth. These things are cute. I would love to have another tin up here on stage for, um, for Lynn. Okay, so let's do it. Thank you guys so much. See you next week.